Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. In a bit of a departure from our normal programming, we are doing an emergency Cormac McCarthy podcast this week, and I am joined by my friend Dan Hawkins, who is a librarian at the Daniel Library at the Citadel. Did I say that right, Dan? You did. Wonderful, wonderful. And um, Dan and I were uh, formerly colleagues at North Carolina State university libraries uh dan was the overnight librarian uh in um, the access and delivery services department i took dan's place as the overnight librarian for i don't know maybe a month or two before i got hired to run the north carolina literary festival which we um changed to the north carolina book festival because of problematic uh web addressing with north carolina lit as you can maybe imagine um but Dan, um, <laughs> Dan, do you want to um, you want to tell our listeners how we met? Yeah, I remember. I don't remember what meeting we were in, but we were in some meeting for just the library department we were in, which was, I guess, the circulation at the time. And we were we were just talking, and I have, I sat down next to you, and I was just kind of oh, new guy, let's just talk. And so within thirty minutes, we had mentioned both Cormac McCarthy and Vladimir Nabokov, and I was like, okay, we're gonna get along. Like this is, <laughs> I was like, I was okay, we're gonna be friends. Uh, yeah, and I think you kind of caught me right at the time where I was just finishing reading up most of his uh, books. I think I first read Blood Meridian in 2006. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and just like I said, we just kind of built this uh, this sort of constant uh, thing of just talking about books. Like I'll, you, you would text me and say, hey, here's an interesting book. Like I'd, I, would, I would have like, this is a writer that I like and like, and Cormac McCarthy at the time was like definitely one of my favorite uh, writers and still is. I, I I have been contemplating a read through of his books in order ever since the new ones came out last year. But uh, yeah, it's just like from the very beginning, our very first conversation, we were talking books. And I don't think think every time we talk, it's either basketball or books. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, a, which is a good basis for a friendship, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And I in here on this podcast, as listeners are well aware, I get to talk about basketball books, which is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> but um let's talk about Cormac McCarthy. So Cormac McCarthy uh passed away earlier this week. Um we're recording here on Bloomsday, June 16th. This emergency podcast will air on June 19th. Um but you know, not unexpected. Uh, he was 89 years old, um, still sad. Um, if anyone had watched any interviews with him based on The Passenger and Stella Maris, you can see that his health was obviously in decline. Um, but he left us with with a masterpiece, uh, two of them really, um, very much especially The Passenger, which we're going to uh, talk about more later. But first, Dan, um, so... When I was working at Quill Ridge Books, we had we had started kind of a a news feed, a blog, and I wrote an article about authors who had appeared on the cover of Time magazine, uh, which Cormac McCarthy hasn't to date. But um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even a little bit in the 80s, I think there was an author photo on the cover of yeah. Time magazine almost every, you know, every month, maybe every couple of weeks here and there. I think since the 90s, there's only been two 
uh, or maybe since 2000, there's only been two, and that is Colson Whitehead and Jonathan Franzen. Um, where I'm going with this is I feel like, you know, we've all seen the Cormac McCarthy news and the obituaries and the eulogies and the suggested reading list all over every, you know, news medium, it seems like. And it feels to me like this may be the final kind of author as celebrity death, um, at least literary author. I mean, I think that we may, you know, see something like this with Stephen King and J.K. Rowling. Um, Neil Gaiman, somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. But do you think that Cormac McCarthy is like the last big celebrity literary author with a capital L? Well, it, it could be. Uh, yes, I in some ways I would think that because you always saw him on the list for like the Nobel Prize and things like that. And of course, for somebody as reclusive as he is, he's actually very, very famous. But I, I think the genre question with him is actually kind of uh, muddled a little because, I mean, he started out with that sort of Southern Gothic uh, feel with his early novels up through Suchery. But then he 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 wrote some like Westerns. I mean, uh, and yes, they were capital L literature, but uh, they were also very much Westerns uh, going back and forth with the traditions and the, the mythology of the West and, and, and largely just trying to undercut that because we have such a shining view of that. But when you when you look a little closely, there's there's, the, there's that dark underbelly. And that's one of the things he was ex- that uh, he was exploring so much. And like both both uh, capital literary fiction and genre fiction can explore that very well. And I think the Western was just kind of perfect for his themes that just sort of bleak loneliness, that sort of that sort of like beauty in the bleakness of things, but like the beauty is just sort of negative space because he's not going to like show you something pretty to quote Deadwood, you know, he's going to, he's going to like let you look into the darkness and try to figure out what's happening there. So, um, and then of course the roads in a uh, sort of a post-apocalyptic novel. So I think it's, it's definitely hundred percent fair to call him that, but I think the genre question is is super interesting because it's, it's not really fashionable to like Westerns unless it's Charles Portis or, Cormac McCarthy or Larry McMurtry or, you know, and so they're, they're actually, it's like, oh, okay. It's like you, you, you make literature or whatever genre you're working in. He definitely, especially with say Blood Meridian or The Crossing or something like that, he made uh, No Country for Old Men even. Uh, he's just made some of the best, uh, I mean, you could say they're the best, West, some of the best Westerns ever written, but you'd also say some of the, some of the best books ever written. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, uh what where where do you classify it i think is they but yes for somebody who has more of a literary reputation than sort of um sort of more of a fanish type um reputation i'd say he's he's among the last of the of the sort of the people who would have a be giants in that field i mean you could say franzen or somebody like that but that's a lot of that is just is popularity too so i i i don't know i it would be hard to say michael chabon maybe i don't know um it'd be uh, but he, and even the even chabon like he's one of his big things is kind of pushing genre boundaries so it's kind of interesting yeah I, I remember being in a creative writing workshop taught by jill mccorkle at nc state when the road came out and um and a lot you know north carolina state's creative writing students are heavily leaning towards sci-fi or they were at the time um well kessel <laughs> john kessel yeah but um you know there was an argument made that the road was a sci-fi novel and i think very much since covid19 became a thing um probably a little bit before that i feel like 
literary fiction is leaning more and more oh, and more towards genre so. fiction, especially sci-fi, not so much Westerns, um, much sci-fi so. and romance, really. Um, I would oh, say, oh, sure. yeah, but, you know, so Cormac McCarthy, let's kind of start. Uh, at the uh, can I bring up one more thing about the genre hey, uh, yeah, connection? Please. I think uh, one thing that I've often heard people say, especially about Blood Meridian, because of just the blood in it is that it is a, uh, that some people will like almost will just say it's a horror novel, you know, uh, yeah. because yeah. And I think uh, that is a very fair assessment though. Obviously most people would say it's a Western first, but I do think that one of McCarthy's biggest themes for sure. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you the Werner Herzog version. Then I'll read you a quote from the passenger that kind of goes that one. The Werner Herzog quote is like the, the universe is it's from a uh, burden of dreams. Uh, that documentary he was in, it says that the universe is uh, monstrously indifferent to the presence of man. And uh, you could almost see McCarthy is just like, oh, that's my thesis statement in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the uh, specifically in the uh, uh, passenger, uh, he says, uh, but above all, and lastly, the world does not know you are here. You think you understand this, but you don't. Not in your heart, you don't. If you did, you would be terrified and you're not. Not yet. And now, good night. Um, and so you could see that that's, that's kind of baked into a lot of what he's saying is just that um, we're going to take a real, we're going to go sort of beyond ideology and we're just going to kind of try to see the world as it is. We're going to kind of take away the filters which we look at it. And we're going to, we're, I mean, he's not the best at dealing with, say, joy or something like that. But like, it, but for exploring that sort of dark end of the experience, like nobody does that as well. I mean, so if somebody wanted to say that, like, say, like Cosmic Horror, which is deals with like sort of the indifference of the universe, like you could definitely squint and see this as fitting into that genre as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to take a bit of a, um, of a right turn from where I was going to go okay, sure, next. Sure. But um, so, Cormac McCarthy, I first read him um, in a course of 20th century literature with a theme of violence right. um, taught by John Thompson at North Carolina State University. And um, we read Blood Meridian. That was my first exposure right. to Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy, I, I, this is not a quote. Was that? And that was at State, you said? Yeah, at NC State. Yeah. And um, this is not a quote, but it's kind of uh, a synopsis of the quote. He says he said that he thought it was dangerous um, for everyone in society to avoid bloodletting and try to get along. Um, he thought that violence was a necessary um, aspect of the human condition, violence and warfare. And you can see this very much um, in, in all of his books, even going up to the passenger, the passenger, maybe somewhat oh, sure. indirectly as the, both of the protagonists, the brother and sister protagonists, they are um, children of somebody who worked with Oppenheimer developing the bomb. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about this quote and, and his perception of violence? It, that goes very much against kind of like 2023 uh, mainstream sensibilities. Yeah. I haven't heard that before, but you could definitely put, see that in his books for sure. There's a, a, a bloodthirstiness that, he doesn't pretend is not there, you know, and I think that is one of the, like, I, I think Deadwood is is one of my favorite shows. And I, th I think it clearly has a little bit of his influence on it. Uh, the dialogue's very different, but at the very end of the series, uh, the last line is he wants me to show him something pretty, you know, 
and McCarthy is not going to show you anything pretty. You know, this isn't John Ford, you know, <laughs> like this is, this is like, okay, well, we have these myths of the West of the, uh, of our expansion. And, but do you know how much blood was shed to get to, for us to get where we are? And I think uh, he, he, I would, I would kind of go off that a little bit too. I would say, I would say he, um, it's almost like he would say, like you, you can't even help it. Like it's not even that it's it, it's not necessary. It's an interesting way of saying it, but the idea that it's just inherent in people and like and like I said, we it's like we we all have we all have darker thoughts. Like people are people have varying degrees of which to which they're able to suppress them, and you know, and like obviously there are also happier thoughts than you're going to find in a Cormac McCarthy novel, but. Uh, and somebody like Cormac McCarthy just, just holding up a mirror to that darker side of of human nature is just something that you have to have in society, or else people. I mean, you, it's it's easy to get really self righteous. It's easy easy to get really. Um, it's e easy to see things through the lens of your ideology so strongly that you just kind of deny what's in front of you. And I think I think you see that across the political spectrum. And they, and, and and McCarthy. Uh, I'm not saying he doesn't have an ideology, but in his fiction, what he's trying to do is kind of strip all that away and just say, what is the world? And like part of what the world is, is, is blood, but, but it's, it's a fight. It's, you know, and there's, and that is, um, that can be, that can easily be drawn up into an ideology that, that, that prizes like a certain type of masculinity or prizes a certain type of, of uh, thing, or it can be seen as like, this is, this or or it can be spun so that it's saying that uh, this actually fits uh, a, a kinder uh, ideology because we're being honest about blah 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 blah. There's just it, it can be spun in so many different ways, but uh, fundamentally, what he's doing is he's just showing you that he's not he's not commenting on it. He's not saying this is good or this is bad. He's just saying this is what is, and it's just uh, and when you read it, it's such it's such a hard uh, view of the world that you almost want like i mean i guess we'll probably get to the idea of why go on living if the world's as bleak a place as it is like which is i'd say one of his big themes as well um one of the, one of the big themes of literature in general for sure but um it, it's it's he just he just has this like we're not gonna we're gonna have no pretense here we are going to look at the world for what it is and we're gonna and we're going to call it what it is um, but that, uh, that reflection of that darker side, I, th I think that just kind of keeps you grounded and, and keeps you from, you know, that is, it's just, it's a necessary function for somebody to be showing people their, their, their darker side. I, th I think horror writers can do that. I think literary writers can do that. Somebody who, uh, definitely has more of a reputation as a literary author, but as we said before, just kind of crosses over into a lot of different genres. He, he, is just kind of holding up that mirror to society, to both individually and as a society and saying like, this is here, don't pretend like it's not, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I want to come back um, in a roundabout way to violence a little bit later, but first I, I want to talk about Cormac McCarthy's just kind of timeline. Um, I'm going to divide his books up into say one, two, three, uh, three different um sections uh with with 
a fourth being his plays and a fifth I've kind of got the passenger and Stella Maris kind of off to the side in their own thing. Um, especially since he had been writing the passenger since the mid eighties and it came out, uh, in 2022. Um, so Cormac McCarthy was sort of famously, um, quote unquote, discovered by William Faulkner's editor. Uh, and you can see this in his early works. I'm going to kind of lump, um, the Orchard Keeper, Outer Dark, Child of God, into this uh, Falconerian um, kind of aspect yeah. of his career, and culminating with Sutri, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what uh, the Orchard Keeper, Child of God, Outer Dark, uh, obviously very sort of demented kind of Appalachian mm-hmm. novels, very oh, Falconerian. Um, Sutri sort of falls in with that, but probably some of his most beautiful descriptive writing is in Sutri. It's probably his most poetic uh, novel that is focusing more on the language than plot, I would say, uh, more so. But um, what are your just kind of feelings about this, you know, first um, kind of third of Cormac McCarthy's career? Um, I will say it's the period I feel least able to talk about because I have read all those books only once each and it's mm-hmm. been a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember exactly what you're saying about Sutri just being like, this is, this is beautiful, very funny at times. Um, I don't remember, uh, as many of the details about that, but yes, it's very much in that sort of Southern Gothic mode that also can like, uh, kind of veer into horror as well. I, I just remember, uh, being shocked at a certain thing that happened in Child of God, and just uh, and just thinking, and I still that uh, that's my most vivid memory from those early things is just that uh, that that shock of uh, the grotesque that you get from those sort of Southern Gothic, like you said, Wagnerian is good because it's definitely pitched very high in terms of the drama, but uh, like I said, it's been a while, and, and like those are the ones that I feel like. There, there are several of his books that I, I'm that basically after the Passenger and Selmaris came out last year, I was like, I need to go back and reread all these in order. So, yeah. but yeah, but like, but I, I enjoyed those books when I read them, but honestly, I don't remember them as well as I would like to, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, they're very good. I wouldn't, you know, if if you removed Cormac McCarthy's name from the cover of The Orchard Keeper, Outer Dark, and Child of God specifically, and threw William Faulkner's name on there, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I don't feel like oh, I sure. would really know. Um, I wouldn't suspect that, you know, the switch was being pulled on me. But Sutri, to me, um, you know, it's a river novel, kind of Mark Twain-ish in ways. Um, also, to me, probably the novel that's the most similar to the passenger in that it deals with a large cast of characters who some of them don't necessarily like go anywhere. Um, but it's a portrait of kind of this place around Knoxville, um, that the passenger sometimes hits at, but after Sutri came blood Meridian and by all accounts, blood Meridian is one of the greatest novels ever written, uh, in the English language, at least, if not just ever written period. Inarguable. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I think the named the the at one point it was named the best novel of the last 25 years. This was 10 years ago or so. Um, but like what 
what is this crazy novel blood meridian or uh the evening redness in the west what kind of switch do you think flipped um in cormac mccarthy's mind between sutry and the writing of this novel blood meridian which were published six years apart um his first novel uh by the way the orchard keeper published in 1965 sutry in 1979 blood meridian in 1985 yeah, it's 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 hard to say, but something's shifted because this is um, just one of the most brutal and most um, and most uh, bleak books you've ever I've ever read. But it's also it's also partially uh, Satan from Paradise Lost. It's 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 Ahab from Moby Dick, and I think those he's definitely got those in mind. So maybe he just read Milton and Melville a lot during that time, and then kind of melded that with this sort of view of trying to strip away, uh, specifically in this case, American myths of the West. You mm. uh, just sort of manifest destiny and things like that. Just sort of the romanticism of the West. I know that. Uh, um, in the forward to uh, the Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry talks about trying to undercut that myth, but how the myth always wants to kind of shine through. And I think this is one of the best examples of somebody saying, no, that myth will not shine through. <laughs> like I, every time that myth shows its head, I'm going to just knock it down again, you know, and he, it's just, just the brutality. I don't know if it was looking at history um, and just deciding that he wanted to kind of talk about uh, sort of the genocide uh, and the just the utter violence and depravity that had to happen for us to expand into the West. I mean, that's not a popular thing to say in certain quarters in America now, but um, there's this myth of just like this rosy view of the West. And, you know, like everybody just tritely says like cowboys and Indians and things that, you know, like these old Western shows. And it's just um, what he does is he puts the sweat and the blood back into it. You know, it's, it's just this amazing, it's, it's just sort of, it, it's, and, and yet it is participating in these, in, in some myths, but it's more like the literary myth of, of, of the implacability of death or, and of like, uh, and of obsession, like, in, I mean, the judge, I mean, he, he's Ahab, he's obsessed, like, uh, it's, it's, it's less clear to me what he's, as what he's obsessed with, but like, he's also kind of Moby Dick because he's the implacability of death. He's like the inevitability of death. That's Anton Chigurh later in uh, No Country for Old Men as well. Like, I, I think those are probably my two favorite uh, embodiments of that implacability, uh, it outside of probably Moby Dick, but like, uh, but yeah, he just in the, in that book, he just kind of, like I said, t- takes away those, the, the stories and the myths that we tell, and then just puts like a very brutal story that kind of fits the facts a little bit better, but, uh, doesn't offer necessarily a lot of hope, but like I, but I think partially it was his ambition because clearly in this book, he is trying to write the great American novel, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like he's trying to write his Moby Dick, his paradise lost, his whatever you want to say. I think, I think, um, the judge is definitely that sort of Ahab devil figure, but, uh, so somewhere between his ambition and his just refusal to, as we were talking about earlier, 
uh, pretend that the world is something other than what it is, I think just kind of all clicked into place and he just kind of had the perfect vehicle for that in some ways. I mean, this is the uh, revisionist Western of all revisionist Westerns, you know, like, like <laughs> I mean, I don't think even he got to the level of brutality in this that uh, that he did in his other books, even though there's definitely violence in those. But this is sort of like, a, I don't know, this is the this is where it peaked, I think, you know. Yeah, lots of lots of scalpings, lots of scalping. Yeah, oh my god, scalps. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, and you know, the protagonist, of course, is is the kid in Blood Meridian, also a character named the kid in The Passenger, which a lot of folks yeah. saw. Very different characters, but a lot of folks have yeah. connections. <laughs> Very um, in those two, and I'll have to say, um, listeners, so one thing about Dan is he's a huge film nerd. Um, somehow only recently just watched uh, Lost Highway by David Lynch. And, um, <laughs> How weird is that? Yeah. And so, you know, I bring that up because with Blood Meridian, I always pictured the judge as like that pale kind of uh, um, dreamy, you know, wicked character in Lost Highway. Yeah. Were always convoluted in my mind. Um, yeah. Only yeah. like... Uh, only giants and also uh completely bald yeah <laughs> but yeah, yeah i could see it 100 percent see it yeah yeah for sure um dan you wanted to uh read a passage from blood meridian i think this would be oh yes for sure that. yeah uh i it, i i compared this i, I mentioned uh, the comparison to moby dick earlier and, and i full disclosure moby dick is my favorite novel i read it every year and one of the most and there's an image from blood meridian um here at the end if this is this is the final paragraph of the show minus like one page of a brief epilogue um but uh the judge as we said is like this is this uh intense almost mythical sort of godlike like with a swallow g figure just uh kind of the catalyst for most for a lot of the worst uh violence in the book um and at the end uh he has murdered another character and he goes into the celebration at this uh saloon and there's just sort of like this uh there's there's a dead bear in the corner and there's this whole just sort of debaucherous thing that's happening and so uh and then there's fiddle music and then the last uh, the last paragraph uh starts and they are dancing, the board floor slamming under the jackboots and the fiddlers grinning hideously over their canted pieces. Towering over them all is the judge, and he is naked dancing, his small feet lively and quick. And now in double time and bowing to the ladies, huge and pale and hairless, like an enormous infant. He never sleeps, he says. He says he'll never die. He bows to the fiddlers and sachets backwards and throws back his head and laughs deep in his throat. And he is a great favorite, the judge. He wafts his hat and the lunar dome of his skull passes palely under the lamps and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, dancing and fiddling at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in the light and in shadow and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. I mean, come on. <laughs> like yeah. He's... It's just just the imagery and that that image is like even when I forgot some of the specific language of that, I that image was it's 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 like Ahab with the flaming spear at the end of Moby Dick, you know, a flaming harpoon at the end of Moby Dick. It's just one of those images that you just can't get out of your head. It's just the judge dancing, you know, it's just it's 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 grotesque and compelling, you know. 
Absolutely. One of the greatest it's the language. Yeah, one of the greatest endings uh, in literature, period. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a good time to take a break. Listeners, we're going to pause here for a word from our sponsor, and then I'll be right back with Dan Hawkins. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with my friend Dan Hawkins in our emergency Cormac McCarthy episode of book in here um we left off at blood meridian so uh as my friend richard pointed out um on facebook i think that there's a bit of revisionist history going on right now in cormac's um kind of obituaries and remembrances that he wasn't that famous until uh the border trilogy came out this is not true um blood meridian i think the year of publication you know he was published by random house inarguably the biggest publisher in the United States. Um, Blood Meridian sold 6,000 copies the year it came out, went on to sell millions. But, you know, 6,000 for a a hardcover um, kind of esoteric literary title at the time was huge. Um, And so, you know, he he was always reviewed in in the New York Times and the best publication. So it's not like he was some unknown author. You know, he was known well enough, even maybe just perhaps in like, literary circles maybe as much as like david foster wallace was when he wrote infinite jest or something like that it kind of made a splash but wasn't necessarily you know um outselling john grisham or anything right, right, um right. but you know then he wrote all the pretty horses which won the national book award um mm-hmm. and then the rest of the border trilogy the crossing and cities of the plains so um this may be a bit heretical but this these are probably my least favorite cormac mccarthy books <laughs> not not the crossing i think the crossing is yeah. one of the best um, and the crossing to me is like literally the crossing, the kind of like midpoint of his career where he crossed over from this Falconerian kind of, um, you know, uh, poetic prose to this kind of stark rhythmic minimalism that we yeah. see from him later in his career. Um, you know, just a great, great book. I think, you know, just the way he makes you feel about animals, wolves specifically in that book. I remember my old colleague at Borders in Union Square in San Francisco, Craig Staffney, just crying um, mm-hmm. when he's reading this because he just loved wolves so much. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, um, but the other two books, I mean, they're good. You know, they're Cormac McCarthy. Oh, yeah. They're obviously great books, but amongst his whole kind of, um, kind of, uh, you know, of war over whatever however you pronounce that um i'm yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. just not my favorites um that being said um probably the favorites of most people (laughs) and um and honestly it's where a lot of people tell people to start because it's it's definitely a lot more accessible uh like no um i mean i told somebody today on facebook they were like hey i read the road and it didn't really hit uh Mm -hmm. where should i where should i start i said well you know i mean I, i usually say um, all the pretty horses or no country for old men they're they're more accessible than some of the other stuff but they still kind of have some of the same they still have the same themes you know so 
Yeah. Also, before um, the Coen brothers released No Country for Old Men, the most successful adaptation um, of Cormac McCarthy was All the Pretty Horses. And I bring that up because I think that this is where Cormac McCarthy took a turn also to be really concerned with film. Cormac McCarthy yeah, loved yeah. film, wanted his books to be adapted. Um, Blood Meridian, I think the film rights just sold right before uh, Cormac passed away. Um, there was, I, I heard some rumors that he was going to write the screenplay even. Yeah, exactly. Maybe he's already written it um, because uh, there has been, you know, a couple of folks who have tried to, to film it in the past, Ridley Scott, um, most famously. Um, but all the pretty horses until no country for old men definitely the the most well-known film um mm-hmm. of Cormac McCarthy's career so i want to talk maybe about his turn towards film here he wrote several plays um that he obviously thought would be adapted so he wrote the stonemason the gardener's son uh the sunset limited which is adapted um beautifully by hbo oh, the two man play yeah starring sam jackson and um tommy lee jones uh the counselor which i know is not your favorite um <laughs> and, and i am going to go back and give that another try because like even uh, like like i said like knowing that cormac mccarthy had written the screenplay and ridley scott who at his best is one of the best uh were collaborating i just had the highest expectations and i got like five or six people in the code to the movie with me and i was like this is Corbett mccarthy and really scott this is gonna be amazing yeah. and then we were all just like very very disappointed with it and they still to this day sometimes uh joke with me about not letting me choose the movies anymore uh, <laughs> uh because of that experience but even that movie that i do think is flawed but i i, I think about it often like there's a line from that movie that i think about what pretty frequently where uh one character says to the other, don't you think that's a bit cold after she says something like just very McCarthy-esque and she says, I believe the truth has no temperature. And Mm -hmm. that line has just haunted me for years. Like, even though I've seen the movie once, I saw it in the theater uh, and I haven't seen it since. And it, and even this movie that I was very disappointed with just it, that the, that sort of language that Cormac has that just way he has of cutting down to like the, the essence of things is just, it's remarkable. And that line just, like I said, re- resonates with me still. Like, I think I, I, I think I may have exaggerated when I said, I think about it every other month or so, but yeah, I mean, I've thought about it often since, since it came out. So mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, and Stella Maris, uh, obviously is, mm-hmm. um, obviously to you and I, at least is all, is a play. <laughs> it's a two yeah, kind of conversation. Yeah. Um, and an, an amazing one, like an all timer. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, um, but it seemed like this is where Cormac turned at the end of his career because um, The Passenger, as I mentioned earlier, was he started writing that in the mid-80s. Um, After The Road, which is his previous novel that came out in 2006, before The Passenger, there's a 16-year gap there. Uh, he did write um, two plays. He released The Sunset Limited. He released The Counselor. Um, can, I, Stella, can I say something about The yeah. Sunset Limited? Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't want to interrupt. But yeah, that one, I have not... Um... I'm reading the gardener's son now, actually, and I haven't read the stonemason. I, um, I just, after he died, I wanted to read something by him. So I picked up uh, my copy of the gardener's son, which I got at a used bookstore a while back. But I, th- I think that the sunset limited is one of the best uh, dis- things that I've seen in terms of giving the whole, uh, why should I live? Is there a God versus there is not a God? like secular versus sacred thing and having 
both sides give their strongest argument, but neither side backing down and neither side. And I, that was just so moving to me because so often what you see is someone trying to say, look at this idiot. He believes in God, you know, or look at this idiot. He does, or like, you know, or, or just whatever the reverse of that is like, look at this person, this person uh, can't see that obviously God created all this and there and and the whole point of the thing is that uh, one side prevails in that argument and that doesn't make for good art but what what the Sunset Limited did which I think maybe I've seen a couple of other things do this well is that it actually gave the strongest version of those arguments people not giving like some type of straw man the, the, it's uh people it, it it gave the strongest version of those arguments I've ever seen. Like both, both sides uh, kind of put their self forward without any straw man arguments, without anything. And, and neither side really bent, you know, it's, 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 and that's how it usually works. I don't think anybody's ever really been argued out of, out of their ideology. People drift from their ideology. I've changed a lot in the last decade and a half, but like that was over time. You know, I think trauma and time are pretty much the only things that really change people's things. And and it's and I, it was just good to see a, a a book, a story, a play that was made like an, into an amazing, like you said, the adaptation for HBO is amazing. Mm-hmm. But it was just nice to see that acknowledged that this is not how people change. But these conversations ne- nevertheless happen and they have to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, perhaps uh, No Country for Old Men, The Road and The Sunset Limited could arguably be read as a trilogy as one kind of continuing. Okay, could you repeat that? Um, yeah, No Country for Old Men, The Road and The Sunset Limited um, could arguably be read as a trilogy as all oh, like kind of connected works, especially when you look at the uh, the last scene of No Country for Old Men, um, the dream that they're speaking of is could be the road. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, you know, going back to the kind of film um, sensibilities uh, and leanings of of this latter part of Cormac McCarthy's career, um, No Country for Old Men and The Road are both very, you know, he it's kind of he's like he switched from, from being Faulkner to being Hemingway because they're very, you know, minimalistic, stark, very rhythmic, almost Shakespearean and, you know, just in the use of like pentameter iambic pentameter mm-hmm. um you know just um stress on stress stress on stress you can read it very musically no country for old men was written as a screenplay um became a novel um and i believe um if i i think that there was only one line that was different between the novel and the film and that is when um i think a, an officer it's been a while since i watched it but an officer in a crime scene says that's a dead dog and the other <laughs> guy says yep and i think that's the only line that's not in the novel um they pretty yeah. much um went word for word but do you think that in cormac mccarthy's mind um do you think no country for old men winning uh the oscar for for the best film was kind of his favorite achievement I, I would not be surprised. I mean, you could argue that it's that it is his his highest. It's one of his highest achievements. Like certainly that has more penetration. I'd say the road maybe is more popular because not only what was it into made into a movie, it was in Oprah's book club, mm-hmm. and uh, and and it won the Pulitzer. And those both goose sales, of course. And uh, I, I we could we could talk later if you want about. Uh, people getting really upset that Oprah put Cormac in her book club, which, which uh, 
which is a whole different uh, conversation. But uh, yeah, I mean, that one of the things that the passenger really reminded me of, and I think both Sunset Limited and No Country for Old Men are great examples of this as well, is just how good Cormac was at, at dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's just so many great exchanges, like what's in the briefcase? Briefs, you know, <laughs> like just like Maybe. jokes that would be like, good in a comedy like um what, what's uh well maybe the best is, is that, maybe oh, the it's best. amazing yeah especially yeah. the jokes i mean he obviously unloaded like the rest of the jokes he had into the passenger sure I mean, sure. Oh, the, sure the 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 goofy mini mouse joke at the very oh end. for sure is that, right, yeah. is that a true story sheriff oh, I, just, I couldn't <laughs> swear to every detail but it's certainly true it is a story you know <laughs> the, right. i mean he's, he's just so good at that uh, mm-hmm. uh well and i think i think the passengers tell morris really uh that. but yeah i i think i see i i'm i'm very mixed feelings about um where i place no country for old men in his thing because if because if i'm th- if i'm just thinking about it, it's like blimmerating easily um my favorite Cormac McCarthy novel, but which one have I read the most times? I read No Country for Old Men six times. No, that's and that's at least in part because it was made into like a film by my favorite film directors, and it's like my second third. Or it's like my third maybe favorite film by them. Like one of my probably a top fifteen movie for me of all time. Like it's just one of the. I just it's just great, and I th- I don't know. I, I I'm trying to imagine somebody who could play the judge for Blood Meridian, but I but. Uh, Javier Bardem was so perfect mm-hmm. as an embodiment of Anton Chigurh, who in turn is just the embodiment of of the implacability of death, you know, and chance. And, and those, those are things that he th- that McCarthy is always talking about. And I think that might be the widest uh, he cast his net in terms of being able to say the things that he type things he says. And like you said, it's 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 not nearly as uh, melvillian and like complicated diction as his early as as say blood meridian or something like that. it's 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 much more straightforward like you say like i i think the the falter to hemingway comparison is is pretty valid there uh but he just gets at some of the uh some of his things it's like what's the most you've ever lost on a bet you know or at the end she goes the the coin don't have no say it's just you mm-hmm. you know like that 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 moment in the movie her, her delivery of that line is just so magnificent and 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 the coins were were so smart to not to not change the dialogue up much you know like they uh uh they they wisely saw that hey we're some of the great dialogue writers of all time but but so is he and we shouldn't mess with with what's good you know yeah i think somebody asked them how did you write the script and they said we just opened the book <laughs> exactly exactly um exactly. yeah i i um I do want to mention a couple of things, but I don't want to go down these rabbit holes because I do want to get to the road and the past. Okay, yeah, sure. um, but one uh, with Oprah, I, I think the most, the person who got the most angry with Oprah was Jonathan Franzen for her choosing yeah, corrections, sure. but then he came full circle uh, for freedom. Yeah. Um, and um, Cormac obviously wasn't mad about it because he, right. it was the first interview he gave. I give Oprah credit here because um, yeah, before yeah. she chose, you know, the road and all of these things, she was choosing classic literature. She put East of Eden on the bestseller yeah, list right after the year she put a William Faulkner box set on yeah. the bestseller list um yeah, and yeah. you know to me yes. like more more power to Oprah and yes. 
Yeah, yes, you you can you can question some some yeah. some choices like platforming uh, Dr. Oz and things like that. But but what she did for the book world is is unassailable. I mean, if you made Cormac McCarthy, John Steinbeck, Faulkner, Toni Morrison was already kind of a bestseller, but she took yeah. but she definitely went up a couple levels in selling at least when yeah. when Oprah did that. And you you the, and those are like some of the great. I, those are some of the. I mean, for the longest time, it was like who are our best living novelists? It's Toni Morrison and Cormac McCarthy, and who was pushing the more of their books than anybody else? It was Oprah. So I, I say thanks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, and maybe we can do another uh podcast in the future about this kind of topic. But for the judge and who would play the judge oh, in the wow. film, yeah. it's just weird because you got to have somebody that looks like Vin Diesel, but obviously is a much better actor than that. Right. <laughs> um, like Vin um, Diesel's body with like Brian Cox's acting chops or something yeah um, yeah yeah Vincent D'Onofrio I thought of maybe yeah that's a good call um uh, maybe maybe John Goodman at a much younger age like when he was a younger man could have pulled it off maybe like he like he like I think sometimes he gets overlooked as a great actor but yeah like I said it's very hard to say for sure like who would be able to pull that off it's it's a it's a tough one yeah. Um, so speaking of Oprah um, and talking about uh, violence, as we did earlier, I, I told you I would bring this back up. Let's move on to the road, which won the Pulitzer sure. Prize. Um, kind of, you know, unfortunately, Cormac passed away before he could win a Nobel Prize, which I think he would have eventually. But I think um, he would have eventually as well. Yeah, but he did win a National Book Award. He did win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, so the road, you know, when you talked about about when you and I met and we talked about Nabokov and yeah, Matt McCarthy, <laughs> it's because right after I took the the class where we studied Blood Meridian, the road came out. I read the road um, and I, I made a new year's resolution. You know, people make these things all the times. This is one of the ones that I actually succeeded at where I was going to read every Cormac McCarthy novel and every Nabokov novel yeah. uh, that I hadn't read before in, in a year. And the road was this kind of the start of that journey for me. I feel so in the context of violence, he, Cormac McCarthy wrote the road after he had a son mm -hmm. uh, much later in life. And this is kind of, a letter to his son mm -hmm. in a way and um you know even i think famously he cormac signed you know like hundreds of first edition copies of the road for his son to sell after his death um so he could you know yeah. I, not i think after that no country for old men came out and there's probably no longer um issues with money in that family but um sure. at the time maybe there was um do you feel like with the road now, let me back up for one more second and say, I read the road initially um, when I was in graduate school, revisited it after I had a son myself and it, it's a much different novel. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, it reads much yeah. differently in that way, but do you think having a son later in his life may have changed his perspective on violence and kind of, you know, um, humanity and the survival of our species? I think I think I think you have to say yes to that question uh, because um, I hear I've been talking about Cormac McCarthy obviously with some people recently since the day a lot of people their introduction to it was the road to Cormac was the road you know it it what it a lot of people want to read all the Blitzers a lot of people read the Oprah books you know and so uh, it made makes sense and everybody's like man that is one of the bleakest books I've ever read and that's like so great but it's so dark and. And I was like, some people argue, and I've argued this before. I don't know if I would say that's true, uh, but some people argue that that's his most hopeful book because of that scene at the end. And it, and it is all wrapped up in the sun because even as um, 
I mean, I, I, I heard, I read somewhere Cormac said that all serious literature is about death. And I, I think maybe that's maybe an overstatement, but I think there's some truth to that. You have, kind of have to deal with some heavy things and he is dealing with, with, with death in a very real way, but yet his son is moving towards these other people. Like it, it's ambiguous. I mean, they, they might not be the good, good people, but there's, there is, there is a hope there. And if it's not, if you don't want to call it hope, it's like I, I said it earlier, I, I think hope in, in Cormac McCarthy's work is almost like negative space in, in the sense that like Keats would talk about, because he's going to show you all the dark things, but like, he also always has his characters keep moving, you know, until they until they die, essentially, you know, and so um, it, it's 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 weird to think of him as a hopeful writer in some ways, but um, he is actually um, he is actually he never says go kill yourself. I mean, you know, like, like his characters obviously are dealing with suicidal thoughts. I mean, Stella Morris is basically a whole treatise on yeah. that, that idea. I mean, almost the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, first line of that Camus essay where it's, so I think the only philosophical matter, philosophical idea that matters is, is the question of suicide. Why, like what keeps you from doing that? And, um, and, and, and the, the psychiatrist in that seems to me to be almost the first people person who says explicitly, what what I think is 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 implicit with his work is that you know a lot of people manage to make it through the day without you know feeling like mm-hmm. as horrible as everybody else like the, the, and that is um, that's not but I think that's implied in a lot of this book especially the road you know I think uh, and I and I do think you have to say that his uh, his son had had something to do with that I mean I um, I I I don't have children myself but. I will say that for me also, though, the second time I read The Road, I liked it much more. Mm-hmm. Um, I read, like like I said, I read uh, Blood Meridian in 2006, and then I read um, No Country for Old Men a couple times in 2007, right before the movie came out. And it was the Coen brothers who are like my favorite directors. And so I was, so that was sort of like, um, you know, the, po- the point at which by my fandom for, Cormac McCarthy started. And I just remember, I can't, I kind of read through all of his other stuff and I don't remember exactly when I first read the road, but I, after reading a lot of his other stuff, I was, I was really disappointed with it at first because I was like, why is he writing? Why is he trying to write a post-apocalyptic novel? He's, he's so good at these other types of fiction, but, and then I, I think I got out of my own way the second time I saw it, you know, the second time I read it, you know, it's you, you, and I was like, Oh, okay. And I think, I, I got it and I enjoyed it a lot much more, uh, much more the second time. I still would have it probably middle of the pack with my Cormac McCarthy rankings, but that, uh, that, that ending just really adds, um, adds a layer uh, to the understanding that, you know, like McCarthy says, yes, the world is bleak. I'm not showing you a pretty vision of the world. I'm not going to show you something pretty, but I'm going to let you, see the world and then decide how to proceed. And it's not, and and like there you kind of see that negative space that, that it's not hopeless. Like, you know, you just keep moving forward. And I think the passenger, like we can get into our discussion later about uh, if he's, if he's, if he's already dead, what, what is the discussion about? Like why move, why keep living? How does that matter if, if he's already dead in that, in that book? But I, I think that that's part of what I, I took from the passenger as well was just that, uh, again, it's just a look trying on a lot of different 
ideologies and looking at the way the world works and then saying, okay, um, it's bleak, but like I keep moving forward. So Western keeps moving forward, you know, and, and I think um, you could see in the motivation of the father in the road, like just the way he, he was just like, he probably would have given up way earlier in the book if it hadn't, if he didn't have the son, yeah. you know? And I, I think that definitely in itself says something about uh, the I change. Think so. I think, I think it's, I think that he switches his perspective in this novel, both in himself as a writer, Cormac McCarthy, and with his protagonist of saying, there's no hope for me, the father, but there is hope for you. Right, exactly. Whereas in the past, in his previous works, it was like, there's no hope for any of us, period. Right, yeah. Um, But but fatherhood uh, seems to definitely have changed him. Um, So, yeah, let's go ahead um, and move on to The Passenger, because I do want to cover this. And... um, our time is running out here because we've we've yeah. been almost an hour. By the way, I do want to say that I'm envious of your ability to reread uh, things. <laughs> <I've> been, <laughs> excuse me, I've been doing this podcast for almost four years now, and um, right. I love it. It's one of my favorite things that I've ever done. Uh, but it dictates my reading schedule. Oh, 100%. Um, and I, I had to work way ahead, um, you know, months ahead in my scheduling to even afford myself the opportunity to read the passenger. Right. Um, I remember which, you talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I did. And, and I'm glad that I did. And I started rereading it uh, after Cormac passed away um, mm-hmm. a while uh, back, but this is definitely, it's hard to place in, um, in the timeline of his novels, because again, he wrote, he started writing it in the mid eighties, obviously wrote Stella Maris, recently um, his publisher didn't even know that was coming they knew about the passenger for decades they did not know about the companion uh novel which is written more um like his plays as we mentioned earlier definitely something that he wrote later um but to me the passenger i've got it up there in in kind of the top tier of mccarthy novels with blood meridian i mean it's it's one of his greatest um and and it's really going to take more time and more rereadings for me to know, you know, maybe it's better than Blood Meridian. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it kind of blends all of my favorite parts about all of the different um, eras of his career together. I mean, there are parts when I feel like it's no country for old men. There are parts when I feel mm-hmm. like it's Sutri. There are parts, you know, when I feel like it's um, some of the earlier Appalachian novels. Um but yes, um, spoiler alert, listeners, Dan already went there, but I, I think the yeah. protagonist is dead the whole time. And, um, you know, I have reason, especially upon rereading, like and I now am like, well, maybe I'm just putting, you know, my own interpretation on it. But now I definitely think that <laughs> um, I definitely think that he was been, you know, was thinking about dying, thinking about death, saving this to be his last novel on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um and my son is currently uh, obsessed with Greek mythology, obsessed. Oh, no. um, and so I definitely, you know, just thinking about mythological rivers in, in the underworld and the afterlife, like I just think that there's a lot mm-hmm. going on there too. Um, I'll bring up a couple of lines to kind of support mm-hmm. my case, but what do you think overall of the passenger? Do you think the protagonist could be dead? You, that notwithstanding, do you think that... Um, do you agree with my assessment that it's one of his best? I like, I will have to admit that I find myself to be a better enthusiast than I find myself to be a critic. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I, and with the caveat that it could be recency bias because I read it uh, back in November when it came out, mm-hmm. but I absolutely walked away from that thinking, okay, 
this is like up there, one of his two or three best, uh, for sure. I, it, um, I don't know. It, 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 like he had had time to work in some of that post, uh, road switch that he had made Mm -hmm. where there's that sort of moving forward. Uh, you know, I, I think, um, I, I whether I, I think you're probably right that it is a sort of a purgatory thing, which I think would explain some of the supernatural elements a little bit better than he just decided to write a fantasy novel. Uh, you know, and the uh, moving forward journeys, if you're thinking right. in terms of yeah, Dark Day, Ovid, et cetera, you know, mm-hmm. these kind of journeys yeah. through through hell or the underworld or whatever. Definitely. I also um, think the other I also think with the passenger, one thing that I really like about it. Mm-hmm. Is a lot of I, th- I think, and I think you and I talked about this over text as well. But I, I, I heard a lot of people talk about, oh, I can't understand all the math. And I was like, well, that's not the point of the math in the book. You're not supposed to necessarily understand every talk because he has, because he has, because this guy is obsessed as a me- he's a mechanic. He loves fixing cars. He's a deep sea diver. You know, he like he's uh, he's he's a high level mathematician. And these are all just ways of cycling through different ways of looking at the world. And I think that's more what he's getting at. And 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 like I said earlier with uh, with Blood Meridian, it's one of the Cormac's things is I'm just going to like get past ideology. So you kind of go through and look at all the different ways you can look at the world. And then once we get past that, we're talking about what we actually see in front of us. And we're not changing that based on the um, we're not changing that based because our ideology says that the world has to be a better place than, than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think he's trying on a lot of different ideologies there and just saying, hey, look at the world from this perspective. It's still kind of bleak, but like, look at it from this perspective. And like you said, the moving on question, I, I do like that idea of like moving on in terms, in sort of mythological terms as well. Yeah. And, and again, the protagonists here, their brother and sister, mathematics obviously runs in their family as their father worked with Oppenheimer developing the bomb. Also, in the last, you know, decade or so um, of Cormac McCarthy's life, he was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, mm-hmm. frequenting a think tank with Werner Herzog and others, really concerning himself with science and mathematics. These are just really in physics, uh, et cetera. These are things that Cormac McCarthy was thinking about for the last 10 years of his life every day. Um, right. And so you know, these things found maybe because he was researching the passenger, who knows? Um, but there was definitely a level of personal interest there. Um, maybe trying to find wormholes between, you know, different timelines, um, et cetera. I mean, I think all all of this is is in the novel and, and it's mm-hmm. things that are going on. Um here's what here's here's my argument for for Western being dead. So um, you've got two narratives going on. You've got the brother and the sister. Um, the brother's narrative kind of moves forward in time, even though there are, there are flashbacks. And the sister's narrative moves backwards. It starts with her death. Um, mm-hmm. And then every one of her chapters is bright bef- before the other, basically just a, a backwards timeline. Um, so the sister says that he's dead or he's in a coma or, or some such thing is going on from getting into a uh, race car accident overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, my question for you. So we, we open with, with Western's chapter. He's, he's deep sea diving. He's um, 
there's an airplane that has crashed into the water. Um, how the airplane was discovered, no one knows. The rumor is that a fisherman saw it, but um, the divers are saying that it's too deep and there's no way that anyone saw it. There's a missing passenger, hence the title. Um, by, and by the way, this is a mystery novel. Um, this is Cormac McCarthy's mystery novel. Right, um, exactly. I don't think that he's yeah. written one before. Um, so there's a passenger. So if you're looking for the Poirot scene where he brings everybody in and explains everything, then good luck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's and that's why these these are spoilers, but not spoilers, because you could read this ten times and and you're not going to figure this out any better than we have it figured out right now. But um, which is a good thing. Uh, but there's a passenger missing from the plane, and the pilot's black box is missing. There's also a case missing. Um, but there's no sign that anyone has entered or exited the plane. They have to use a torch to kind of cut their way in. So my argument is that. Uh, the passenger is Western. Um, there's a scene at the very beginning where he comes up from his dive and he's wrapped in a, an emergency blanket from uh, an emergency kit. But um, there's nothing wrong with him. He just dove and looked at a plane and came back up. So as a as a seasoned, you know, theoretically professional diver, why why do you need to bust into the emergency kit for a blanket? That seems yeah. like you would have like other blankets. You would, yeah. You'd have a blanket there. Cause like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that that's yeah, okay. just kind of signaling, you know, to his like, you know, um, either in a coma or afterlife consciousness, like, Hey, there's an emergency going on here. Um, and also there's a line right at the, the beginning uh, in this first chapter when he, he, they leave the, um, the scene of the plane crash and he kind of, sees a bunch of his friends from different eras of his life um all gathered together and drinking um kind of just in a celebratory mood um and there's this one line that jumped out of me um he says he's going on his way to bed and somebody asks him just getting off the graveyard shift is it and he says that's pretty much right on the money <laughs> um, yeah yeah you yeah. Know. yeah and there's just things like this um sprinkled all throughout the novel um that can be interpreted as like this character is dead um yeah. you know that that's just really hard to ignore i don't i don't feel like you know i talked to a bunch of cormac mccarthy fans about this they're like cormac mccarthy doesn't do stuff like this i'm like cormac mccarthy does all kinds of crazy shit right. if you look over the course right. of his career yeah. and like he's also a writer that doesn't put anything in by accident. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that this interpretation was meant to be there, whether it's the ultimate interpretation or not. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's definitely something yeah. to look at. Again, I've only read it once, but I think that's, that's completely plausible and, and maybe even, and probably even probable <laughs> like that. That's, that's, that's correct. Um, it's it's, yeah. it's it's crazy with him with him uh ever since those books came out i wanted to go back and reread those but i've also like okay i need to re really re really go through the whole the whole yeah. thing and read it start from the beginning but then when i was reading i was rereading the last chapter of blood meridian i was like, oh i gotta read this first you know so it's just yeah. this it's this uh, um I, but yeah i i i think i think you're probably right that he that it is sort of his view of like what does what do you make of life in view of death and like and doing that through the perspective of, of two dead characters you know like yeah exactly and I mean there's two more lines I want to point out here one so that he goes back he he leaves his friends 
again, all from different eras of his life that just for some reason happened to be drinking together at the same table. Um, and then he right. is walking down the street and there and the street is blocked. There's an ambulance and a police car with their sirens going and he can't go any further. Um, and there was an interesting, it, it's supposedly this guy named Lurch who lived above a bar um, that has uh, died via um, suffocation, killing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a line where there the detective is asking a bar the bartenderess um, if he has any kin, this Lurch character. And she says, I don't know. They always seem to have a sister somewhere. Um, <laughs> which, um, you know, it, it's yeah. just a one of those weird uh, lines that are in there. And I've, I've got some more. There's also, uh, Dan, if you remember when um, when he finally goes home and he there's two detectives waiting outside right. of his house, right? Um, and he hasn't done anything wrong. He's a professional salvage diver, theoretically, right. even though he's exactly. got like, you know, half a dozen different professions over the course of this novel. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows? Um, what that's all about but the detectives are waiting for him they know that he's you know looked at this plane there's thing there's luggage missing they know the black box is missing etc um his first reaction when he sees the officers is vault to the gate run away right um why why do you think that's his reaction he he, he hasn't done anything wrong right yeah yeah, it's that that is that is a question. I I, I am I, I don't know. It, it could be an instinctive response to authority. It could be um, a further hint that like this is proof that he's dead. And he doesn't want to admit it yet. You know, <laughs> like it could be um, I, I, there's any number of things it could be. I haven't really thought about it um, as much. But yeah, that is that is that is what it's like. He knows he's involved in something over his head, but I, I don't. I don't think he's like. Obviously, this book is not about solutions. It's it's more about the actual question of the mystery. So, um, so maybe just reacting to the detectives in that moment is just saying, "Hey, I am running from the idea that there is like an actual like perfect solution to this. That maybe it's just me." trying to keep because like i said like i said it's 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 a mystery without like the the final reveal you know it's it's a it's it's a mystery that it's 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 the old uh sometimes it can almost be a cliche but i think there's something true to it about like the the well-formulated question is more important than than uh like the having the correct answer you know and like i think sometimes uh when you're dealing with so much unknown with life and death i think that is one of the things like McCarthy, like like I said, he he doesn't pretend like what's in front of him is not what's in front of him, and so he's not making he's not just trying to say, oh well, this is what happens after you die. You know, it's just sort of like we don't know, and I, like it's a mystery. You know, and he's and he's he's constantly kind of brushing up the edge against of these mysteries, but never really, never, like never really actually answering. Like there's so much in there's so much in the mirror image of what he's actually doing. I, I keep going back to that idea that Keats idea of like negative space of like, these are the questions you're just saying. And then like, he's, he, he, he's expecting you to actually put in the work of like, okay, yeah, that, that's true. Like what, like this is, this is a crazy, this is this, what is this world? You know, what, is, what is death? What is life? Why stay alive? You know, it, it, it's, 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 it's remarkable. I'm sorry. I, I kind of went pretty far field where you started there, but. 
No, it's all good. And I think like just to bring us full circle and wrap this up, Dan, yeah. um, two things. One, um, in most mystery novels, the mystery gets solved. And that is why Cormac McCarthy is a literary author, <laughs> not a genre author. Um, and also, you know, I ask all these questions about The Passenger, really just to point out that this is one, you know, we've had, what, 30 to 40 years or so um, to think about Blood Meridian. Sure. Um, we've had, you know, 10 months to think about The Passenger. Um, and I think that this is, again, one of his greatest works that that's going to continue to be um, discussed and, and solved, um, et cetera, as time goes on. I agree with what you said earlier. Like, it feels like he was saving this one up to be the last, like, yeah. especially now that we know that he he was that close to death. Like he, he, he had to see it coming and was like, okay, so this is my final statement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listeners, I've been speaking with Dan Hawkins, librarian at the Daniel Library at the Citadel College in Charleston. South Carolina um, for our emergency Cormac McCarthy podcast. Dan, um, I want to thank you for joining me and hopefully we can do uh, more stuff like this in the future. Yeah, for sure. I would, I would love to. And thanks for having me. Like I said, one of my favorite writers has been, and like I said, that's how we became friends was <laughs> we were talking books and that was one of the first ones we talked about was uh, something about McCarthy. So absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Dan. Yeah. Once again, I would like to thank Dan Hawkins for joining me. Cormac McCarthy's novels can be purchased at www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been 